Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of torture and psychiatric treatments that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. We've all met someone with a superiority complex. Someone who refused to play by the rules, insisting their way is best. Such people can be selfish, narrow-minded, domineering, and hard to work with. This was how a lot of colleagues likely felt about Dr. Harry Bailey. He exaggerated his skills, pretending to be more qualified than professional surgeons, and used treatments he had little experience with. He was bullheaded, overbearing, and manipulative. Unfortunately, no one called him out. At first. The result? Catastrophe. Somehow, Bailey gained enough support to open his own psychiatric clinic with no oversight. And so began the terrible tale of the doctor whose arrogance led to some of history's most traumatizing mental health treatments. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to assist Alistair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Dr. Harry Bailey, whose quest for fame left a trail of bad inventions and very bad results. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Dr. Harry Bailey, an Australian psychiatrist and hospital administrator whose deep sleep therapy treatment resulted in the deaths of at least 24 patients, though some estimates link him to nearly 100. Today, we'll cover Bailey's early journey into the rapidly changing field of psychiatry. We'll also track how he manipulated prominent institutions into validating his dubious credentials. Next week, we'll explore the horrors that went on during Bailey's controversial treatments and the widespread criticisms that led to his downfall. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery... Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. On March 7, 1960, 37-year-old Dr. Harry Bailey feverishly wrote a letter to Australia's Public Service Board criticizing the quality of care at the country's largest mental health facility, Callan Park Psychiatric Hospital. He wrote, Generally, it appears that this is a very corrupt hospital with very little discipline or notion of ethics of psychiatric treatment. On the surface, Bailey's sentiments reflected concern for his patients. And as the hospital's superintendent, he was in a position to speak up. But he probably had an ulterior motive. More likely, Bailey saw the facility's mismanagement as an opportunity for more control and funding. There was just one obstacle. The Public Service Board didn't take well to his claims. Receiving a report about malpractice at a public hospital is no small matter for a government organization tasked with ensuring proper care. In response to Bailey's claims, the Public Service Board would have focused on any specific complaints he'd made and then would have opened a preliminary investigation in an attempt to substantiate them. Then they decide whether or not a larger inquiry was required. If the Public Service Board felt that one was appropriate, it may have played out through the gathering of testimonials, conducting interviews, or maybe even more covert methods. Just as they are today, accusations of dysfunction or corruption at hospitals were taken very seriously in 1960, so maybe Bailey's letter was viewed as inadequate or too emotionally driven. Perhaps he was just flat-out wrong in his assertions, or maybe there was some other unknown factor that influenced the board. I can't say for sure. As a major federal civil service of Australia's Commonwealth, they had to act very carefully, as all of this was potentially a very serious problem. Rather than seriously entertain his claims, the board denied everything after a brief investigation. There wasn't anything wrong with the care offered at Callan Park. But Bailey knew a way around that. If the board wouldn't listen, the press certainly would. With little more than a snap of his fingers, he whipped the media into a frenzy. Articles questioned how the government could ignore the egregious claims. Meanwhile, Bailey drew up plans for the extravagant renovations he'd make once the board kowtowed to his whims. 
Callan Park would be under his supreme authority in no time. Or so he thought. Long before Harry Bailey manipulated Australia's healthcare system, he grew up in the small town of Picton, New South Wales, surrounded by lush pastoral landscapes. He was born in 1922 to working-class parents, Jack and Ruth. They were simple people with a simple life, but it became clear early on that their son was destined for more than that. He was smart and had the potential to do great things, but for that to happen, he needed more opportunities than Picton could offer. So, at some point in his education, Bailey's parents shipped him off to live with his aunts in Sydney, about two hours away by train. Bailey was determined to prove that their decision had been worth it. While Bailey's new school was more challenging, he seemed to thrive there. He later said that the experience helped him become more independent. Beyond that, we don't have many specifics about what his life was like or what he studied. It's not even clear where Harry Bailey went to high school. He later claimed that he attended Sydney's prestigious Waverley College, but that's never been verified. Nevertheless, in 1940, 17-year-old Bailey applied to the University of Sydney. He was accepted and enrolled in their science program to study medicine. But his family couldn't financially support his education so he took on a position as a pharmacist's assistant. This was a pretty substantial undertaking for a 17-year-old. Pharmacist assistants typically collect prescriptions from patients, take inventory and restock drugs, and file medication orders. They also often dispense, mix, label, and package medicines for the pharmacist, in addition to helping customers check out at the cash register. Today, pharmacist assistants deal with much more technology, more stringent documentation, and a larger variety of medications. Despite this streamlining of the job, in some ways it makes training longer and drastically increases the workload. Nevertheless, even though the career is arguably more complex now, it was still ambitious for Bailey to take on a job that required accuracy and some medical awareness. The job was most likely time-consuming, which would have drawn Bailey away from his studies. And even with the extra income, it still wasn't enough to make ends meet. He was forced to drop out in 1942 after only 18 months. Most people would have seen this as a setback, but Bailey used his hiatus to keep saving money for his return to school. Thanks to his background, he found work at several pharmacies throughout the early 1940s. He promised himself to go back to university once he could afford it. Then, in the winter of 1944, 22-year-old Bailey met a cashier named Marjorie Noonan. She was just one year older than Bailey, and the two hit it off right away. They got married on January 19, 1945, after only a three-week courtship. Shortly after, Bailey honored his plan to return to university. This time, he kept his nose to the grindstone. Surprisingly, what most of Bailey's fellow students remember about him was his participation in the arts in his free time. 
Once he created comical holiday cards. Another year, Bailey designed sets for the students' review entitled The Guinea Pigs. Both of these standout moments suggest that there was more to Bailey than his interest in medicine. He cared about what people thought of him, working diligently to win over the affections of his peers. And he did. His charisma was unquestionable, and it likely helped his career. After he finished his initial medical courses in 1951, Bailey secured graduate training residencies at both Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and Broughton Hall, a psychiatric clinic located at Callum Park. By that point, 28-year-old Bailey had set his sights on mental health care. As it happened, new kinds of therapies were emerging in the field, and Bailey wanted to join the race to innovate them even if his own success was at the expense of the patients he experimented on. Coming up, Harry Bailey captivates a national audience with his far-fetched claims. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the ParCast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, back to the story. In the early 1950s, 28-year-old Harry Bailey completed his Bachelor of Medicine at the University of Sydney. He also began his graduate training in psychiatric medicine at Broughton Hall. Mental health treatments were still in their infancy, and as doctors at the facility tried to revolutionize the field, they weren't afraid to try out somewhat invasive therapies. Some doctors used an experimental schizophrenia treatment known as insulin coma therapy. True to its name, they injected patients with an oversupply of insulin, which induced a coma. Between an hour and several hours later, that same patient would be given a glucose injection to jolt them awake. Inducing a coma is undoubtedly an extreme way to go about improving mental health. 
For one, treating insulin coma made patients obese because of the large metabolic shift it created, and this was especially true for those who were on long-term treatment courses. More importantly, though, it posed a big risk of permanent brain damage and even death. Given the limits of psychiatry back then, it makes some sense that this kind of therapy could have been looked at as viable. Psychiatrists often claim that patients felt less anxious, paranoid, and hostile after treatment sessions, but there's no legitimate evidence to prove any real efficacy. Luckily, treating insulin coma changed in the 1960s with the advent of antipsychotics, and this was a welcome shift since the risks far outweighed any claimed benefits. Even in the 1940s, the doctors seemed aware of those risks. As Bailey later shared, many came to fear the irreversible coma, when a patient failed to wake up after being given the glucose injection. Rather than turn Bailey away from the treatment method, this problem only inspired him to adapt it to increase its efficacy. Bailey believed that a prolonged coma would alleviate mental problems. And that theory was widely held at this point, that mental disorders were the result of physical abnormalities in the brain. Despite all the medications that can positively alter brain chemistry, the basis of most mental health issues is no longer thought to be entirely defined by our brain's physical makeup. It's now understood that mental health is created from a combination of our genetics, our inherited genes, and our epigenetics, or those things in our early life experiences that influence how these genes are expressed. The genetics help determine our delicate balancing act of our brain chemistry, which determine the levels of serotonin and dopamine that directly influence our behavior. The epigenetic influences are those early life exposures to myriad issues like poverty, abuse, parental incarceration, or divorce that will also influence our mental health. So we now know that our mental health is determined by both inherited and environmental influences that combine to make each of us uniquely different. Doctors believing they could manipulate mental health with invasive procedures, like the ones being conducted at Broughton Hall, were sorely mistaken. These treatments could have even exacerbated a patient's disease, Alistair. All in all, the widespread misconceptions of the era ultimately delayed the development of optimal psychological care, which has only recently reached a reputable standard. But working under these incomplete theories, Harry Bailey felt that, with the right technique, he could treat conditions that remain incurable today, like schizophrenia. Worse, perhaps, was Bailey's motivations. He believed that doing so was the ultimate path to fame and notoriety. Because the waters of mental health were still so uncharted in the mid-20th century, experimental practitioners were often revered as experts, even if their theories didn't prove correct. Drawn to this power, Bailey bided his time at Broughton, taking note of the ways he might innovate insulin comas. He believed that the longer the coma, the more effective it would be. And this was key to improving the treatment. Bailey wanted to use a long-acting substance or combination of sedatives all at once at a high dose and then in short doses in the hours that followed, 
but he wasn't yet able to test these theories. To do that, Bailey hoped to one day run his own clinic. Not only would this allow him to experiment with his own regimens, but there was another incentive too. According to his wife, Marjorie, Bailey wanted a role that freed him from the grueling hours that most doctors simply took as a non-negotiable. The problem was, as a second-year student of psychiatry, he didn't yet have the credentials. Given his charisma and social skills, however, it may have struck Bailey that he could network his way to higher prestige. Now, we don't know who he talked to, and there are no records of who promoted Bailey, but in 1953, just two years into his graduate training, he was appointed Assistant Clinical Director of the Division of Mental Hygiene of the New South Wales Department of Health. It was certainly a mouthful. And it was a bit odd, too. Bailey was still earning his degree in psychiatric medicine, yet somehow he'd been deemed worthy of a position of authority. In this new role, Bailey was responsible for an entire assembly of public workers. He'd potentially oversee clinical treatment protocols, organize important conferences, and review a wide array of new initiatives for various hospitals across the state. Based on the current medical hierarchy, this was definitely a very strange promotion given his age and level of academic achievement. Having just obtained a bachelor's degree with only two years of graduate experience working at a psychiatric hospital, this role would have very likely been beyond the scope of Bailey's capability. This whole situation is somewhat believable to me in that the field of mental health was still in its infancy. They may have been grabbing at straws or possibly desperate to fill the position. Also, at the end of the day, we have no way of knowing what kind of help Bailey had. Maybe he had a supervisor or some sort of on-the-job training from a higher up. However, he still surely had to wiggle and squeeze his way into that job. He must have been quite the apple polisher, to put it politely, and on paper, his appointment to clinical director of the division was really puzzling. Then again, Bailey wasn't always honest in presenting his past experience. He was known to embellish his resume. For example, he elevated himself from a pharmacist's assistant, claiming that he'd worked as a pharmaceutical chemist. This was no small fib. While Bailey may have had experience filling prescriptions, that certainly didn't make him a chemist. And in 1954, 31-year-old Bailey graduated from the University of Sydney with his Diploma of Psychiatric Medicine, or DPM. In the course of his studies, he'd also received a special award granted to the top student in psychiatry known as the Norton Manning Prize. Bailey conveniently neglected to mention that he'd only been in the running against two other students. Indeed, embellishment was one of Bailey's favorite tactics. Bailey also used his graduate training to expand his professional network. He did this with the help of Dr. Ian Fraser, who served as the New South Wales Chief Medical Officer for Mental Health. 
Bailey promised that he could bring widespread innovation to the field of mental health, defining Australia as a player on the global stage. Dr. Fraser reveled at the prospect. Improved mental health outcomes would mean more esteem and power for Fraser as a public figure in psychiatry. So he told Bailey he would support him wholeheartedly. And Bailey knew exactly what to ask for. He decided he needed to travel across the world to research emerging techniques from leaders in the field. He hoped that this would set him up to finally open his own practice. With Fraser behind him completely, Bailey submitted a proposal to the World Health Organization, also known as the WHO. But to be seriously considered, he turned to many of New South Wales doctors. He told them all about his quest for innovation, hoping they'd put in a good word and help sway the WHO. It seems Bailey knew exactly who to speak to because by the end of 1954, 32-year-old Bailey's application was accepted. This made him Australia's first travelling research fellow. His appointment made the papers, making him a popular public figure. With his life taking a new, exciting turn, he and his wife set out for their international adventure on December 26, 1954. Along the way, Bailey visited Tulane University in Louisiana to observe the clinic of Dr. Robert G. Heath. Heath had implanted electrodes into the brains of the mentally and terminally ill to discover which regions were responsible for which emotions. Bailey was most interested in Heath's search for the pleasure center of the brain, which was thought to cause behavioral issues. After weeks of observation, Bailey pocketed the information, considering whether it was possible to physically disconnect that part of the brain. Then Bailey moved on to another college for more research. At the University of Illinois, he likely observed the function of the drug LSD. According to Bailey, while LSD simulated the hallucinations of people with schizophrenia, it might also be able to cure people of the illness. While certain psychedelics have been and are being used to treat mental illness, Bailey was overeager to assert that LSD was a solution for schizophrenia. When it comes to using it as a viable treatment for this particular disorder, the jury remains out on this one. Contemporary research in this domain is scarce, and past studies are predominantly considered scientifically invalid by modern standards. Some obvious problems with using LSD include its short-acting effect, it requires supervision, and its effects vary significantly depending on the individual. Because of its unpredictability, there's also the potential that taking LSD could actually make symptoms of schizophrenia worse. Furthermore, the ongoing treatments would require strict compliance and monitoring, difficult for patients with this illness. While deeper study into this hallucinogen could yield amazing revelations in the future, Bailey was standing behind its health benefits a bit prematurely. It's unclear why Bailey latched on to the LSD treatments. 
Researchers in the United States may have found some interesting benefits from the method, but their findings were preliminary. It's possible that Bailey was more interested in the controversy surrounding the drug than its success rate. Much of his early career revolved around techniques that were inherently shocking but under-researched. This was likely due in part to his obsession with being on the leading edge of science, even if that's not where he truly belonged. Bailey's studies in America had proved fruitful, but he hadn't yet explored what would become a leading tenet of his practicum. That supposedly happened at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. There, he likely encountered the work of Dr. Ewan Cameron, a psychiatrist who researched electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. During the 1940s and 50s, electroconvulsive therapy was spotlighted as a physical treatment for psychiatric disorders. This procedure is still used today to treat patients with severe depression and bipolar disorders who haven't demonstrated any benefits from traditional treatment. The therapy involves placing small electrodes around the skull through which an electric current is passed. ECT involves quick pulses of electricity meant to stimulate the brain, which was often delivered callously in the past. In modern times, anesthesia and muscle relaxants are administered prior to ECT, but this wasn't such a widespread practice until the late 1950s. Patients would frequently undergo this treatment without sedation and would often suffer severe memory loss, strained muscles, and broken bones. It's a treatment that should never be done while a person's conscious, that's for sure. Despite its proven efficacy for certain ailments, ECT remains controversial even today for good reason. Bailey watched the researchers at McGill eager to pocket yet another method to use on his own someday. Similarly, Bailey watched the work of Dr. William Sargent on a trip to London. After killing two patients who'd been unconscious for too long, Sargent learned that he shouldn't keep patients asleep for more than a few hours. Bailey had seen this at Broughton Hall watching insulin therapies, but he still held fast to his own opinion that longer sedation was optimal. Once again, his takeaways were merely folded into his arsenal of intel as he trekked on to Lund University in Sweden. When he returned to Australia in 1956, Bailey claimed he'd worked for both prestigious institutions. Of course, 33-year-old Bailey had merely been an observer whose expertise was limited to viewings and conversations. But as always, Bailey embellished his expertise to get ahead. And the Australian government was all too quick to revere him, seeing Bailey as someone who'd made good on his research grant. If public health was a stage, Bailey was their favorite actor. In turn, Bailey's name quickly spread through newspapers, and he was exalted for his studies abroad. His growing following also inspired politicians to align themselves with him in their attempts to gain public approval. Being attached to the growing star of psychiatry made them seem like progressive stewards of public health. 
Now armed with this broad support, he could get to work building an institution designed exactly as he'd envisioned it. He could finally conduct the brain experiments he'd waited so long for. Coming up, Bailey's zealous intentions garner his first critics. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Now, back to the story. In early 1956, 33-year-old Harry Bailey returned to Australia, filled with ideas from his 15 months abroad. He was eager to conduct experiments of his own now. Lucky for him, his old pal Dr. Ian Fraser, the state's chief medical officer for mental health, had a vested interest in supporting Bailey's success and the innovations he'd promised. With Fraser's support, Bailey appealed to government officials, urging them to fund a new department he called the Cerebral Surgery Research Unit, or CSRU. As the prospective director, Bailey could finally explore electroshock treatment and deep sleep therapy on his terms. And sure enough, the New South Wales government granted him one million pounds, a sizable sum at the time. The dream Bailey had at Broughton Hall now took form, just a stone's throw from that very facility on the Callan Park grounds. Bailey may have relished the opportunity to walk past his old colleagues with a heightened air of superiority. But as local staff looked on, it quickly became clear that Bailey wouldn't just be leading the new unit. He was designing something of a medical fortress for it. Bailey set up an intercom system that allowed him to eavesdrop on any room in his unit. He also had armored glass windows installed. This ensured that no one could ever break them and jump. But perhaps most revealing of all were the purchases he made for his office. His kidney-shaped desk seemed more fit for an advertising executive than a doctor. It contained a secret drawer for Bailey's pistol and a button that set off a hidden tape recorder. Other psychiatrists began distancing themselves from Bailey's growing ego. When the CSRU finally opened in 1957, Bailey made baffling claims about the necessity of the work they were doing. Among the most appalling of these was that schizophrenia was the largest problem facing the community at large. According to Bailey, the condition struck down two to three youngsters in New South Wales daily. This was a gross overstatement, given that, even today, schizophrenia only appears in less than 1% of the world's population and was even more underreported back in the 1950s. But Bailey was on a mission. 
he believed that unwanted behavior stemmed from a specific location in the brain. And he wanted to pierce that part of the brain with a fine wire to measure electric currents, even though his theory wasn't proven. Bailey also claimed he could reduce instances of epilepsy by conducting operations that used something he called deep freezing, a practice he failed to elaborate on. Given how susceptible the public is to medical opinion, it's important that doctors know what they're talking about and can back it up with facts. I've not heard of his proposed deep freezing therapy, but hypothermia, in combination with a barbiturate infusion, has long been recognized as a mitigator of epileptic activity in laboratory rats and humans. However, this is not optimal treatment, and to make such promising claims without viable research can be very dangerous. Bailey seemed more concerned with innovating rather than using hard-earned data. Naturally, mental health care professionals were shocked by his claims. Many had never heard of the procedures Bailey mentioned. But the national press, who'd elevated him before, took his word as gold. And somehow, several noteworthy professionals did join Bailey's team. Among them were neurosurgeon Dr. John Dowling, psychiatrist Dr. John Heron, and a psychologist, Dr. Evan Davies. Under Bailey's direction, they got to work altering traditional electroconvulsive therapy methods. He claimed that, historically, the machines were typically twice the size of a table with huge dials on top and big handles. But Bailey felt that this appearance alone scared patients. So he had a smaller device made. He termed it the Minecta. It included a new component called a glissando. It would temper the electric shocks given by the machine so they would gradually increase in current. According to Bailey, this feature reduced the abrupt onset of the tonic contraction of the seizure that occurs when a patient is shocked. During ECT, the current that runs through the brain excites and reboots its electrical wiring, inducing something called tonic-clonic seizures, which look very dramatic, similar to grand mal seizures. The abrupt onset of these seizures, produced from the electric current, manifests in wild bodily movements and severe muscle contractions. Bailey's new little glissando component, in theory, would slowly increase the ECT shock's intensity, potentially allowing for less violent and sudden physical reactions. It's a bit perplexing that Bailey emphasized the importance of having this feature, especially in that it was never scientifically validated and eventually completely fell off the radar. Bailey never formally explained why it would be superior. He simply said it would. An engineer created the Minecta for him under the agreement that Bailey would research it to see how it compared to other ECT machines. But he didn't honor his word. The promised fieldwork never happened. Instead, Bailey boasted that the Minecta had been implemented at many healthcare facilities across the nation. In reality, he had the only one. And it was a prototype at best. 
Even more tragically for patients treated in the CSIU, the Minecta had a significant problem. The slow rise in voltage meant that the first shock sometimes didn't render them unconscious. While regular ECT machines immediately put a person under, anyone treated with the Minecta likely experienced a period of total awareness and feeling. Patients later recalled seeing flashes and bright lights. For them, the therapy had likely been traumatic. By 1959, the facility had 57 beds and a similarly sized staff, but wasn't fully utilized. Despite how impressive the operating room was, only one operation per month was typically done. The unit was eerily reminiscent of a film set where everything looked state-of-the-art, but nothing functioned. He'd promised innovation, but he was failing to deliver. Even still, not even two years into running the CSIU, 36-year-old Bailey decided to expand his resume. He applied to be medical superintendent of the Callan Park Psychiatric Hospital, situated on the same grounds as the CSIU. And Bailey had no plans to give up his role as director of the facility. Without much convincing needed, and possibly with the assistance of his high-standing friend, Dr. Ian Fraser, the Public Service Board gave Bailey the job. This was a big promotion for Bailey. It's pretty normal, however, for hospitals to promote from within, as that person will have a built-in familiarity with the inner workings of the facility. On top of this, Bailey was already holding an administrative job, so it's safe to assume that this and his embellished persona got him in the door. Nonetheless, this was a massive uptick in responsibility for him, and on top of running the CSRU, he'd now be expected to oversee day-to-day -day hospital operations, ensure proper staff management and patient care, supervise expenses, and establish the organization's future goals and objectives. While many would see this as a daunting undertaking, Bailey seemed to revel in the authority. His quest for power almost seemed unending. But from his very start as medical superintendent at Callan Park in September of 1959, Bailey clashed with the hospital's bureaucracy. He saw appalling conditions there. And while we know Bailey was power-hungry, egotistical, and liked to push the boundaries of psychiatry, his shock at the state of Callan Park was somewhat founded. The facility was a relic from days when mental clinics and psychiatric wards were more like asylums intended to keep the mentally ill as far from society as possible. The Callum Park buildings were designed with a capacity of 500 patients, but in 1959, it housed more than 1,700. The patients lacked proper care. Diseases ran rampant from a lack of proper hygiene even worse, Bailey claims that sometimes days passed before the staff realized a patient had died. In those instances, the bodies were placed in warm water so that when the medical officer arrived to write up an official report, the patient still appeared recently deceased. 
When Bailey confronted the staff about their misdeeds, they appeared unwilling to reform. To assert his authority, or maybe to save face for the lack of improvement, Bailey wrote a report to the Public Service Board on March 7, 1960. Among his statements, Bailey said that many of the workers at the facility were sadists, criminals, and alcoholic psychopaths. He requested an in-person review by someone from the board and insisted that conditions be improved. Even though the Public Service Board may have been reluctant at first, they ultimately opened a police investigation. Officials sent back a report months later on May 25th. Bailey's old friend, Dr. Ian Fraser, also went along to check out the facility. But in a shocking turn, neither the police nor Fraser substantiated Bailey's claims. While it would be easy at this point to assume that Bailey had lied for the sake of asserting his authority over the workers, patients at Callum Park have since spoken to the horrors of being there. Bailey's statements may have been more accurate than not. Without the support he needed to innovate Callum Park, Bailey turned to the public and press. And before long, the Public Service Board had a scandal on their hands. But Bailey's plan backfired. The bad press didn't establish significantly better practices at Callum Park. Instead, his colleagues and superiors shunned him, criticizing his ability as a leader. Even Dr. Fraser turned on Bailey. As the wheels of Bailey's good standing ground to a screeching halt, so too did his roles at both Callum Park and the CSIU. He was effectively forced to resign. He would have to find a new way to innovate mental health care in a private practice where bureaucratic constraints couldn't confine him. Indeed, that fall of 1960, Harry Bailey may have just decided that he would retaliate against the powers that be with a vengeance. Next week on Medical Murders, Bailey takes his experimental practices behind the walls of Chelmsford Private Hospital, where death runs rampant. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information, among the many sources we used, we found Deep Sleep, Harry Bailey and the Scandal of Chelmsford by Brian Bromberger and Janet Fife Yeomans extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 